Every time I have an opportunity to wake up on a Sunday morning on a Lord's Day and get a chance to come somewhere where the Lord's people are congregated, where they're singing praises to God's name, where they're offering prayers to the throne of God, where we give as we prosper, that we remember his crucifixion, the vicarious suffering as he suffered for each and every one of us on the cross. On those occasions that the Lord gives me the privilege to stand before his people, the greatest people on earth, I feel blessed. I know that God loves me and he cares for me and he cares for each and every one of us. And I know this because he demonstrates it each and every day of our lives. Every beat of our hearts, every billowing of our lungs, everything that we see, every thought that we have as Christians, they echo the fact that all the way from heaven, God loves us better than we love ourselves. The golden text of the Bible that I probably quote and your fine minister does also almost every sermon where the Lord said out of his own mouth, giving the duality of his mission as he came to this earth not to point a finger at us and our weaknesses and our failures and faults and fantasies and flops and foopahs in life. That's not why he came. But he came because love constrained him to come. The same love that God demonstrated as soon as man messed up. Before there was sin, there was already a savior. Because before the foundation of the world, God had already decided that he was going to save us. That he loved us enough as his children, his creation. A family that he created for himself. That he loved us enough to die in our place. And when Satan thought that he had won, that he had pulled off the coup, that had, in the face of God, the ones that you love, you may have thrown me out of heaven. You may have kicked me out. I may not have won in my coup to overtake heaven and overtake you. But look what I just did to your people. Look at what I did. I made them sin. And in your face, disobey you. And don't you know when God said, there's something you don't know about, Mr. Devil. It's called grace. It's called mercy. But you didn't give me none of that. You are already in heaven. You were foolish enough to get kicked out. But I'm going to have grace and mercy on them because I've got a home for them. And I want them to come to this home so we will die in their place. And the first Messianic prophecy right there in Genesis 3, God let us know that he loved us enough to prepare for our salvation before Adam ever opened his eyes, before Eve ever looked upon him and he looked upon her. God had already prepared for the violent act, the most violent act that has ever been created because the mass murder of mankind was perpetrated right there in that garden, right there in that garden, where the devil brought his old, ugly father of lies self there and told the first and most diabolical lie that has ever been told. You won't die. I know God said you'll die, but you won't die. You can't believe God. You won't die. Go on and take of that fruit. And Eve took of it, and Adam committed suicide by God in his own mind because he sinned with his eyes open, but had decided to die with his bride. 
I want you to understand on that day, brothers and sisters, God demonstrated what Jesus told on that day when he talked about the love of God. God demonstrated that he is omnipotent, he is omnipresent, he is omniscient. In essence, God knows all. God already knew what was going to happen before God created us. God had already prepared for our perpetuation, for our redemption in this violent act that was created right there in a place that was called Eden from the Hebrew paradise. And so therefore God, who has never said, whoa, didn't see that coming. Oh boy, they blindsided me that time. How can God know all and have the devil slip up on him on anything? So Jesus said very clearly, out of his own mouth, as he looks at our brothers and sisters who lived about 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, for God so loved the world. How much did he love us? He so loved us. That word so is an adverb of degree. God so loved us that he decided that God, the Godhead, would die in our place. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father planned this redemption, this perpetuation, this justification, this regeneration, this recreation. God the Father planned it. Jesus the Son, if God says we're going to die in their place, somebody's got to become a man because somebody has to execute the plan. The Son executes the plans of God. And the Son became a man in order to execute the redemption of man after this terrible and violent act in the Garden of Eden. And then somebody has to bring order out of chaos. The Holy Spirit's job is to beautify, to bring order. And the Holy Spirit has given to us the greatest story ever told about the greatest life ever lived. And that is the life of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, who himself suffered and died in a violent act. And so when the Lord spoke on that day about the love of God, what he wanted us to understand, not just God's love, but God wanted us to understand our capabilities, what we're capable of, and what we can become. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, obeys him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus gives a bombshell to the devil and his angels in the Hadean realm of sin. He says, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him, through him, might have life. Jesus wants every one of us to know on this day as we worship him, as we bow to him, as we sing to him, as we petition and pray to him, as we give remembrance of him, as we fellowship with one another in homage to him. Jesus wants us to each and every one of us. And as we do this, we say to God, thank you. Thank you for all that you have done for us. Jesus came and lived a sinless life, a sinless life. And Peter said, we should walk in his steps. Why, Peter? Because he knew no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. This man was pure 
from the inside out. So not only did he show us the love of God, he showed us and demonstrated to us what we're capable of becoming. Brothers and sisters, God has always accepted the existence of sin, but God has never accepted the necessity of it. God has never said you had to sin or that sin just forced itself on you. God didn't put sin in the drinking water. He didn't put it like bacteria in the air. Sin is a choice. And God tells us in his word that sin is transgression. It's when you know where the line is and you make a cognitive decision to cross that line, even though God asked you and pleaded with you and demonstrated for you that this was not what you were supposed to do. God, the Bible, lets me know. The prophets let me know in his demonstration in the Old Testament. And the apostles wanted us to understand that God is not willing He's not willing. It doesn't give him pleasure. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And he demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So as we approach our assigned topic on violence in America, we are first and foremost gospel preachers. And as we stand in the pulpit, as directed by the shepherds of this congregation and other congregations around this country, we as gospel preachers know that it has to have a relevance to getting me to heaven, making me a better person, and obeying those things that have been given to me in God's pages of inspiration. I'm not going to stand here and do the 5 o'clock news, the 6 o'clock news, and give you all the stats and statistics and the stuff that you already know. I'm not going to tell you that America has a mess on its hands. Lord knows you already know that. I'm not going to tell you that the streets aren't dangerous, that there are places even in this world where blood runs in the streets like water. I don't have to tell you that because you already know that. What I have to do And what the shepherds of this congregation would want me to do is to make us as Christians take a look in God's word that America and the world has turned away from and ask ourselves why these things happen. And there is a very logical, reasonable reason why these things happen because you can't play with God. God says, I will not be mocked. God says, you're not going to play with me. You're not going to point a finger of defiance in my face and still have a good outcome. God says, I will not be mocked. And whatsoever you sow, that shall you also reap. In essence, God says to America, God says to Europe, to Asia, God says to the Middle East, God says to every creature that he created, he created, that he will not be mocked, that those things which we sow, we will reap from those things which we sow, which makes us step back from it as Christians, as God's children, as those who have been remade and recreated, revitalized and rejuvenated by the word of God. It makes us step back 
So we can take an introspective examination of ourselves to ask ourselves if we are on the mission that God gave us. Because Jesus sat down on an obscure hill. The Bible don't even tell us what hill, what mountain it was, but he just sat down. And the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus preached that lesson on the day, the sermon that changed the world. Because he looked down on the least, the last, the little, and the lost, and he told them that they are powerful. That the rich and the powerful, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priests, the lawyers, the scribes, all the politicos of that day that perpetrated so many atrocities upon them that they actually had the power. And the Lord is saying the same thing to you. While we look toward Nashville and toward Washington and toward the House of Representatives, both nationally and, and within our state, the Lord says, no, no, you, you have the power. The Lord says, you are the light of the world. You're the one that illuminates folks as to what law is really relevant and really powerful. You, you are the light of the world. And he says, your light is not to be put under a bushel, but on a candlestick, so that it can illuminate and light the entire community. But he went further than that. The Lord said, you are the salt, the salt of the earth. And the Lord is basically saying, if, there, if there's going to be a flavor on this earth, if the earth is not going to stink, in my nostrils, it's because the salt of my people has been strolled enough to savor and to save and to flavor. And the Lord knows exactly where you are this morning. Because as he goes over the landscape looking and smelling the stench of sin and defiance and transgression and perversion and corruption, then he says, ah, oh, there they are. There they are. As he came across you this morning and heard the sweet sounds of praise and homage and reverence and smelled the sweet savor of love that comes from his people. The Lord gave you that job. If the earth is going to be saved and savored, if there's going to be light in the darkness of ignorance, then it's our job. If our gospel, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And the Lord sent you to save the world. He wants us to save and to savor. As gospel preachers, we know that the Apostle Paul said to the brethren in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 1, Paul said, Be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. What we want to do is turn not just ourselves in a more fervent fashion to our mission as Christians and members of the Lord's church. But we want the world to understand the reality in serving a true and living God rather than the perversion of looking to those things that are dead and temporal that pulls us down the elevator of sin and pulls us into transgression. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 24, he said, let no man, no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. 
That word wealth in that context comes from a Greek term which means well-being. That if we can teach people, rather than looking within themselves with their selfish desires and concerns, but instead get outside of themselves. My daddy used to say in his sermons that the smallest package in the world is a person all wrapped up in themselves. And when we look around the world today, that's what we see. We see what John told us and, and constrained us to avoid. Because John said, love, love not the world, love not the world. Every one of you in this room can quote that scripture. Love not the world, John says. Love not the world. Why, John? Because all that's in the world, in the world, is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And Jesus wanted us to know. He said on one occasion, what have you accomplished? What have you profited? What have you gained? If you should gain the whole world and lose your own soul, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? In essence, Jesus is saying, John will define it later. What do you have if you gain the whole world? You got the lust of the flesh. Every itch you scratch it. Every desire you fulfill it, every craving you feed it, you've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye. You have spent your whole life accumulating and hoarding and getting and stacking and storing. Another thing my daddy used to say, I quote my daddy all the time, I sit and listen to him preaching all while I was growing up. He used to say that people will spend money they don't have. To buy stuff that they don't even need to impress people they don't know. And when we think about all the stuff we do in life, that's what we do. The Lord said through John, he says, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. When we find ourselves caught up in those peas of life, pleasure, power, pride, prestige, position, and possessions, the devil then takes control of our life and he will lead us. And too many folks, they want those things by any means necessary. It doesn't matter whether it's right or it's legal or it's sensible or the, the, the end is not in their mind when the devil so possesses them. This is why Peter said, speaking of that instigator of violence, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 8, when Peter warned the church, knowing that he would soon be martyred, his death was imminent. And Peter said to the brethren, be sober, be sober, be vigilant, keep your eyes open, be sober, don't get drunk with pride and materialism and worldliness, be sober, be vigilant. He said, because your adversary, your opponent, as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. In essence, there's someone that wants to get you all caught up in this atmosphere, this environment, this culture that says, no matter what you have to do, you succeed, you succeed, you succeed. 
That's what the world wants to get you caught up in, in that same mindset. When the Apostle Paul was talking to the brethren in the book of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and verses 12, Paul said to the brethren, the grace of God, the grace of God, he said, that bringeth salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And as is according to the Apostle Paul, you don't get caught up in the foolishness of this day. You don't let people lead you to where you lose sight of who you are and whose you are. You don't allow the world to put some type of right, a, a, a script for you. And all you've got to do is follow that script. And if we do this, we end up like many of the folks that we see today who are caught up in this culture. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 and verses 2, after asking the brethren to present their bodies as a living sacrifice, Paul said, be not conformed. Don't conform. Don't give in. Don't sell out. Don't play the game. Don't play the role. Don't let others write your script for you. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When you think different, you act different. There are too many of us that want things to change on the outside before we change things on the inside. And the Lord wants our minds, our hearts to change so that things can change. The Lord said in Matthew chapter 6 and verses 12, therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Because this is the law, the Lord said, and the prophets. And this is what the Lord is saying is that when we do right ourselves, we have an effect upon a world that has lost the ability to do right because they are caught in darkness and in sin. Paul said to the brethren in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and verses 15, Paul said that we henceforth from this point on, now that I have taught you, now that I have led you, now that I have shown you how to be a good man, a good woman, a good husband, a good wife, a good child, now that we've talked about the divinity and sovereignty of God, he says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and are carried about with every wind and doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive or to lie or to fool you. The Apostle Paul knew that the day would come, and it was there within the Roman Empire. Violence was everywhere. Murder and all types of assaults were there. Violence is defined as force, physical force, deployed to harm, to injure, to abuse, to destroy, or place a person in submission or in subjection, to force to have one's way with another person to achieve one's desires. 
The World Health Organization has placed this in record and defines violence as uh, and, and defines violence the intentional use of physical force or physical power or other means result in the high likelihood of injury, of death, or psychological harm. I go back and I can remember the Lord speaking on that occasion of the man that was on the Jericho Road that fell among thieves. And we see all three rules played out right there in the Lord's parabolic teaching or in the Lord's teaching. He fell among thieves. That's the iron rule. Might makes right. You got it, I want it. If I've got the power to take it, I'll take it. I look upon you and I decide to remove your humanity. I decide to disrespect your person. I decide to cross over into your freedoms and your rights and exert my power, my authority, and my will. That's what those thieves did. They beat that poor man up, took that poor man's possessions, and left him there to die. When I watch the news sometime, I wonder what in the world is wrong with the world. Who raised these people? Where did they come from that you can look a child in the eye, turn a gun to the side, shoot them between the eyes, and sit on their bodies and eat a cheeseburger? Who raised these people? Where in the world did they come from? Everybody wants to talk about the lost generation, but nobody wants to talk about who lost them and how they were lost. This is what we do because we're Christians. We're not waiting on the news commentators to tell us. We're not waiting on the talk show hosts to talk about it. We're not waiting on the polls to tell us what everybody else thinks. We go to the word of God and we understand that that iron rule that made those men feel mighty because they outnumbered him and outpowered him. Then the silver rule. There came the priests and the Levites. They do no harm, but they did no help. They just walked by on the other side. And the golden rule, the Lord wants us to remember of that person who stopped and reached down and lifted that individual up. That's who we are. We're the ones who've got to open the eyes of men. Because understand something. Colin Powell and Schwarzkopf, when during Desert Storm, at a time when they were talking about propaganda was rampant all over that region, they made a statement that has been made before, but it was very, very pertinent at that time. When they said that the first casualty of war is the truth, the truth, the first casualty of war is the truth. And we're at war. We're at war with the most diabolical evil that has ever been that wants to destroy this nation, your family and your soul so that you will lose your soul. And so for that reason, brothers and sisters, when we think about violence in America, there is violence towards self, self-injury. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in America today. What in the world would constrain a first grader to say that there is nothing to live for? What would make a beautiful little teenage girl take her life saying there's nothing to live for? 
When we have not done what God has commanded for us to do as a nation, right now self-violence is one of the most prevalent, dangerous, and heartbreaking problems in our country. Because we have failed, so many people have failed, have failed to raise their children in the nurture and the admonition of God have made them look to someone greater than their classmates and their peers for acceptance and to feel good as an individual. Then there is violence upon others, interpersonal violence. We see that rampant. Wives are taking the lives of husbands. Husbands are taking the lives of wives. Children are taking the lives of parents. Parents are taking the lives of children. Friends are taking the lives of friends. Strangers are taking the lives of strangers. When we see this every day played out in front of us, it makes no sense. Somebody down in Memphis recently, a four-year-old child strapped in their car seat in the back of their mother's car just came by and just shot that poor child to death for no reason other than random violence. Just killed that baby just to kill somebody. A young lady was shopping in a shopping mall, returning a Christmas present. She didn't come home for a day, and the second day while her parents were upset and looking all over the place for her, they found that child sitting in her car in the parking garage with the Christmas gift still in her hand where somebody just walked up to the car and just shot her. Just killed her, didn't rob her, didn't take her purse, just killed her just to take a life because it was Monday. And when we look at this, we got to realize something that the Lord has always wanted us to understand. And that is righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach, it's perversive, it's destructive. Sin is a reproach to any people. People, we have a debate that's nothing more than a smoke screen. We have a debate that's nothing more than a distraction. Guns kill people. No, people kill people. No, guns kill people. No, people kill people. Well, I can solve it right now. Sin kills people. People are killed because of sin. Because they have not been taught what is right. And because they don't have good in them. And God has always wanted us to understand this. Solomon wrote something in, I mean, Paul, David wrote something in, in Psalms chapter 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that light, that law doth he meditate day and night. What David demonstrates is something that happened to him. It's called the progressiveness of sin. And what we've seen since World War II, through the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and on into the millennia, we have watched the progressiveness of sin. We have watched sin become more violent, more prevalent. But not only that, even worse We've watched sin become acceptable and something that we just live with. Woe unto those that call evil good 
and to and call good evil. The progressiveness of sin, as David put it there in Psalms 1, David started off just a peeping Tom, if you don't mind me using that term, standing up on the roof looking over at another man's wife. He progressed from that point to a conspirator that sent for that woman. From that point, uh, progressed to an adulterer who lied with that woman. From that point, a conspirator who tries to cover it up. From that point, a murderer and a conspirator again to try to cover it up. This violent act of destroying that man's house and taking that man's life by one that God loved and loved his heart shows that when the devil is allowed to get in your head, which is why James clearly said, clearly said, let no man, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. James says, no. He said, for every man is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and is enticed. I'm, I did this because I was poor. James says, no, you didn't. I did this because I was black. James says, no, you didn't. I did this because I was white. James says, no, you didn't. Because I was in the city. No, you didn't. Because I was in the country. No, you didn't. Because I was uneducated. No, because I was too educated. No, because I was poor. No, rich. No. James said, you did it because you were drawn away and enticed by sin. And what we see being rampant in our nation today are men and women who are enticed by that which comes easy without work, without labor, without suffering. My daddy used to, when he was working at the post office, would go and rent, he would go and rent land. And he planted one year two acres of squash and an acre of okra. Who needs two acres of squash? And an acre of okra. Do you realize how much work? And he said, Bill's character. Yeah, okay, thanks, Dad. Because you got to pick okra every day and squash every other day. And we worked and worked. I chopped cotton, picked cotton, drove John Deere tractors from can to can't. I did all of that and, and learned it late as a city slicker from the seventh grade up until the time I went to Freed Hardeman. But the one thing he impressed on me over and over and over and over, Nick, nothing's free. You got to work, boy. You got to work. You got to work hard because nothing's free. Nobody owes you anything. We have a society with an entitlement syndrome that everybody owes me. And I don't have to work for it. Because everybody owes me. Hosea put it like this in the book of Hosea chapter 4 and verses 1. He said, hear the words of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord had a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Why? He said, because there is no truth. There is no mercy. There is no knowledge of God in the land. And when we survey the land today, isn't that what we see? That there is no truth, there is no mercy, there is no knowledge of God in the land. So when we think about the violent crime in America, we have to think about the fact that including homicides, there were 17,250 murders 
in 2016 and 17, and we've already surpassed that in 18 and 19. Large cities with populations more than 1 million had a 20.3 rise in homicide. There is more violence in America than any other country on this earth that is considered a rich nation, and we have to ask ourselves why. Before I sit down this morning, I want you to think about a couple of things. Joshua said something as he looked at the children of Israel, as God was getting ready to bequeath riches upon them, give them vineyards they didn't plant, cities they didn't build. He was getting ready. God was giving them the land that he had promised in the Abrahamic covenant years and years before. Joshua said to the people, if it seemed evil for you to serve the Lord, Choose, 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 choose. He said, choose you this day, this day, who you will serve. Who you will serve. He said, whether the God that brought you out of Egypt, led you through the Red Sea on dry ground, fed you for 40 years as you made a ridiculous decision to take 40 years to go in an 11-day journey. He said, choose, choose you this day whom you will serve. But for all the men in the room, all the men in the room, Joshua told you exactly how you need to stand with a backbone, strong arms, and a resolute mind and heart before your Lord. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And every man in this room and every good, virtuous, strong woman in this room, you've got to say, as for me. And my house, we will serve the Lord. We will not become subservient to the ridiculous ignorance that is in this world right now. We will not become subservient to all the sin and the violence and the hatred. We will not become subservient to sin. We will train up our children. We will do the best that we can. And we will stand for our Lord. Where there is hatred, we will show love. Where there is doubt, we will show faith. Where there is despair, we will give hope. Where there is darkness, we will shed light. And where there is sadness as God's children, we're going to bring joy. Brothers and sisters, you've got to hear (coughs) what is written. The reason so much is happening It's because God's word is not there. After a shooting in one of the schools, and I'm not making light of it, so please forgive me for using the illustration. It was a terrible, terrible thing. But after the shooting in one of the schools, an atheist thought it necessary to stand up as the story goes and say, see, how can a God, if there is one, let something like this happen? And he was told, You put God out of the schools a long time ago. We took prayer out of the school. The teacher used to read a Bible verse every morning when we started off. We prayed at our desk before we went to the cafeteria, thanking God for our food. Can't do that anymore because we've taken God out of the marketplace. Men need to hear the word of God because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When I hear about the perfect life of Christ, I want to change my life. And I will acknowledge I'm wrong and repent of my sins. 
I'll stand before men everywhere and say, I believe. I believe in this violent world that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I want to bury my old man in the watery grave so I can stand up again and walk in the newness of life. And if we've gotten caught up in the, the perversion and corruption and just silliness of the time in which we live, those are times when we need to return to God and thank him for what he has done and repent of our sins. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a lady who they did a show. It was called Hoarding, I believe it was. And they set up the show and they set the cameras up in the Dempsey Dumpsters. And they went in her house every day preparing for this shoot. And they shot as they brought out tons and pounds and pounds of garbage and old papers and debris. And they put it over in the trash can. And they went and did this day after day. And every time they went home and stopped the shoot, she climbed back over in the trash can, in the dumpster, took it all out, and drug it all back in the house. They would bring the crew in the next day and take all the garbage out again. When they went home, ended the shoot, she would climb back over and bring it right back in the house again. Eventually, the producer of the show said, pull the cameras, pull the show, let's go on to another individual. We can't help her. She's become too comfortable in her mess. What's wrong with America today? What's wrong with America today? We've become too comfortable in our mess. You got to shine the light. You got to do it. Think about it. Always think.